Now, from a purely historical point of view, it's not easy to speak about Padmasambhava. We don't know the exact date of his birth or the exact date of his death. All that we know, and we know this quite definitely, is that he belongs to the 8th century. We also know that he was born in India and spent the greater part of his life there as well as in adjacent Buddhist countries. He visited Tibet during the reign of King Tisang Detsan who according to the Tibetan annals reigned from the year 755 to the year 797. According to some accounts, Padmasambhava spent some 18 months in Tibet. According to others, he spent as long as 40 years. And it seems, as far as we can judge, that the former account, that is to say, the account of his spending some 18 months in Tibet, is the more likely. Now, all our information about Padmasambhava comes from Tibetan sources. In India, unfortunately, he's been completely forgotten. Perhaps this is not surprising. After the revival of Orthodox Hinduism, after the destruction of the Buddhist monasteries at the hands of the Muslim invaders, the Buddha himself was forgotten for more than 500 years. So that it's not surprising that the great Guru, Padmasambhava, should be forgotten too. Now there exist in the Tibetan language, as part of Tibetan literature, quite a number of biographies of Padmasambhava. The oldest of them all appeared in the 13th century. And as a short summary of this very early and important biography, in Evans Wentz's Tibetan book of the great liberation. The biography happens to be attributed to Padmasambhava's Tibetan consort, Yesi Chogya. And these biographies are very, very interesting indeed. They contain a great deal of very valuable material. But they are not very helpful, historically speaking. And there are various reasons for this. In the first place, when we examine these biographies, we find that the biography of Padmasambhava, in some strange, in some unaccountable way, has been mixed up with the biography of the Buddha, hmm? uh, who lived, of course, 1300 years before. Uh, it's rather as though uh, the biography of St. Francis had got mixed up with the biography of Christ. Hmm? But that's the situation that we find. And in the second place we find that in the course of his career, Padmasambhava was known by very many different names and titles and epithets, uh, according to what he was doing, initiations he received, and so on. In fact, in the biographies, he's re referred to by so many different names. So many different names occur that we're not always quite sure with whom we are actually dealing, especially as some of the names that Papa Sambhava bore at certain stages in his career were also borne by other teachers at different stages of their career. So we hardly know sometimes with whom we are dealing at all. Hmm? And then in the third place, the biographies usually do not stick 
to what we would regard as historical facts. They contain a great deal of what modern Western scholars would regard, even dismiss, as legendary material, just like, in fact, the traditional uh, biographies of the Buddha. They're not just concerned with stating historical facts. They also incorporate myth and legend and symbol and parable. And all these things in their own way shed light on the inner meaning and inner significance of the life. Make it clear from another point of view. Throw light on it as it were from another dimension. So this sort of legendary material in the biographies of Padmasambhava uh, consists of various kinds of material. In the first place, we can say there are episodes which, though, as it were, represented as having actually occurred historically, are not really historical at all, do not really belong to the external historical biography of Padmasambhava at all. They symbolize, rather, certain spiritual truths and certain spiritual experiences. Uh, one of the more obvious examples, one of the more obviously symbolical episodes, for instance, is that of Padmasambhava's initiation by a Dakini. Huh? And in the course of this episode, which is recounted as though it actually happened, some very strange things indeed occur. For instance, Padmasambhava enters the Dakini's palace, and after a few preliminaries, what happens? she transforms him into a syllable, into a mantra, into the mantra whom. And having transformed him into the mantra, the Dakini proceeds to swallow him. And then we are told he received the secret of Avalokiteshvara initiation inside her stomach. Hmm? So obviously we're not concerned here with historical facts. We're concerned with a different level of meaning and significance. Uh, Lama Govinda, incidentally, in his book The Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism, has explained or given some explanation of this particular incident, this particular episode. Obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. And the biographies of Padmasambhava are full of episodes of this sort, full of material of this sort. And then again, of course, there are lots of episodes, uh, the purpose of which seems to be simply to glorify Padmasambhava and to emphasize his greatness. And such, uh, such uh, episodes, as Evans Wrench has pointed out, represent Padmasambhava more as a sort of culture hero than as a spiritual teacher. And then again, there are episodes in the biographies which simply incorporate indigenous Tibetan uh, folklore. So all of this, uh, the biographies as containing all this sort of material, uh, all these episodes of so many different kinds, uh, certainly constitutes a very rich body of material indeed. And it's not very easy, therefore, to sort out what is really historical and what is not. Uh, some preliminary work has been done by scholars, by Western scholars, and with some uh, general idea now about Padmasambhava's career, but there are still quite a number of unanswered questions and there's no question at all yet of any definitive biography.